Hello and a warm greeting from Hitendra, from me, and a warm welcome to Intersections. At Intersections, our main goal is to allow us to see the full potentialities. Full potentialities for us to not just survive, but thrive and flourish through good times and bad. And to be able to go through our journey in life and leadership in the pursuit of our fullest potential. Now, one of those forms of intersections that I've been very invested in over the last several years has been to take the fields that I am you know, pursuing, such as, for example, business, and make them intersect and connect with disciplines that are the frontiers of the science of human nature. As I was doing that over my first few years of research in the last 14, 15 years, I ended up sort of recognizing that it's very important for us to study those disciplines that are truly helping people become better versions of themselves. That led me to look at the field of psychotherapy. And as I was doing that, I was flummoxed by the wide disparity of the different fields that psychotherapy represents. There were a whole wide range of ideologies, methodologies, treatments, groups, movements. And so I decided for myself that I wanted to zoom in on those parts of psychotherapy that were going to satisfy two criteria. One, that they were scientifically very solid on very solid ground in terms of the evidence that science had picked up over the years that they really work in a measurable and trackable way. And the second was that they were incredibly practical. Therefore, could be tools that any or all of us can use from time to time. Through that, I discovered the power of a discipline called cognitive behavior therapy. And so I started to ask myself, who are some of the experts in that discipline? And I got very blessed to, at that point, encounter the work of Dr. David Burns, who is going to be our guest today. So let me introduce you to Dr. Burns, and then we will welcome him into our show. So David, as he is you know, popularly known, is one of the not just leading lights in the discipline, but really in many ways, a living legend. He has an MD from the Stanford School of Medicine. That itself is a really rich and powerful story, which hopefully we will get into when we, when we talk to David. And he is now serving there at Stanford as a professor and a researcher and a trainer. He has, of course, done incredible work in the field of therapy bringing about so much transformation to so many people's lives. In addition to that, he has also been an incredibly invested just contributor to the advancement of his discipline with all of the training that he has done of therapists over the years. I myself have sat into some of those sessions. I've had the distinct pleasure and privilege. And it is an incredible dynamic to watch him working with these, you know, experienced at times leading practitioners of his craft, of his discipline, and just holding that audience to a state of tremendous respect and awe for the manner in which he is able to bring to life its most advanced tools. His research and his practice of therapy specializes in relationships and depression in anxiety in trauma. I've also seen David work on things like anger and addictions. He is the author of a classic in this discipline, called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy. If you have not, until now, encountered this book, I encourage you to race to your online bookstore and get access to it now, since we're all in this uh, lockdown phase. One of the most successful psychotherapy books ever published, um, 4 million copies sold in the United States, many more around the world, an incredible, an incredible force unto itself. These are some of the other books that David has published over the years. I have had a chance to look at many of them, draw insights and tools from many of them. The one on the right that you see, Feeling Great, is the very exciting new development of where David's uh, teaching and broad popular kind of like outreach is going now. This is the new book that is going to come out soon, Feeling Great. He's won numerous awards in the discipline that reveal how much wide and deep regard there is in the field for the range of contributions that he has made over the years. And so it is my distinct pleasure to welcome into our midst, Dr. David Burns. David, welcome. Thank you. Uh, David, it's a great joy to have you with us. And I thought maybe we can start by, you know, just having you share a little bit about your personal journey. You have been so deeply invested in reinventing and advancing the field of mental health. What got you interested in mental health? Well, <clears throat> when I was in college, I was a philosophy major. I, I would have majored in physics. But I realized I wasn't smart enough 
my roommates who majored in physics had IQs so far beyond my own, but I did have an aptitude for philosophy. So I majored in philosophy and thought I'd go to philosophy graduate school. But one of my um, roommates, my senior year, said you should read this book by Ludwig Wittgenstein called Philosophical Investigations. Uh, the downside is it's rumored that only seven people in the world can understand it. But on the upside, he says, some people claim it contains the solution to all the problems of philosophy. And I, I thought that was pretty fascinating. I was like fascinated by problems like the, the free will problem. How, how can humans have free will if we're following the laws of the universe, things like that. And so I started reading this book, but I couldn't understand it. I, I could see why people couldn't understand it. It was just about simple things like a piece of string or someone, a bricklayer laying a, bricks in a wall and he is an apprentice. And when he shouts out a brick, the apprentice brings him a new stone to, to put in the wall. He'll just say something like that and say, now do you see where Aristotle missed the boat? And I would say, no, not really. I don't understand what you're talking about. This sounds nonsensical. And I kept reading that book. And then in the spring of my senior year, I was walking across the Amherst campus and kind of came to me in a flash what he was trying to say. And in that moment, I saw the solution to all the problems of philosophy that had, had intrigued me. And I thought, gosh, I don't need to go on with philosophy. And that was Wittgenstein's hope for all of his students. He, he saw philosophy as a kind of mental illness. And he saw his book as, as a treatment for it. And, and it really worked. And it, it was incredible. And so I t went to my supervisor and said, I don't think I'm going to go to uh, philosophy <clears throat> graduate school. Maybe I'll try psychology. That, that seems more practical. And then he said, no, you've got to go to medical school. I said, why? I'm not a pre-medical student. I haven't had any of the prerequisites. Why would I want to do that? And he says, oh, well, if you go to medical school, you can prescribe drugs. That's what psychiatrists do. Psychologists can't do that. And they're going to be so important in the future. And I said, but how would I ever get into medical school? He says, oh, you can talk your way into anything. And so I got into Stanford Medical School and I was one of the worst medical students I think they ever had. I skipped most of my classes. I, I never should have been there. I had nothing in common with pre-medical students and had never had a desire to be a doctor. But that, that was how I ended up going to medical school and, uh, and ending up in, in, in psychiatry. You know, I'm always amazed at your storytelling, at your humor, uh, in the way you look at life, and, and also at your humility, David. I can, I can only imagine how you must already, from that point, been creating many lasting impressions in the lives of people around you. So you started off in a discipline that, in many ways, is very physiological. It's about, it's about the, in a sense, the, the physical aspect of uh, who we are. And then you migrate into kind of like the mental health side of it. And, um, you know, it, it's quite remarkable because of who I know you to be over the decades, that at that early stage, you were so deeply invested in studying this uh, theory of chemical imbalance as a factor in mental health, in triggering things like depression. And... Um, what happened to you when, when, you, when you were going down that path, which is so medicational and pharmaceutical? What, what happened that uh, ultimately led you down the path of pursuing mental yeah. health from a very different, well, there, different... There were two or three things. Uh, all I ever wanted to do was to treat people and see people get, get cured from despair to, to, to joy. And after my residency at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, I did three years of, of, of research and everything was on brain chemistry. You know, we were told that, uh, and people are still being told that depression is due to some chemical imbalance in the brain. And so I was doing research on uh, brain serotonin, the so-called happy chemical that's lacking in people who are depressed. But I, I reviewed the entire world literature and I couldn't figure out where this theory came from because I couldn't see any evidence for that, that theory. And we began to test it d directly. And one of those studies is the one I won the uh, A.E. Bennett Award for, was on, on brain serotonin metabolism. But we did a very simple study. We had a, a, a research unit at the uh, VA hospital in Philadelphia. And we, we gave half of the veterans massive daily doses of L-tryptophan. That, that goes directly from the stomach into the blood, and, and then it diffuses into brain, and it's, and it's quickly manufactured in, into serotonin, the thing that's supposedly lacking in depression. 
and half of the veterans didn't didn't get any of, of this uh, uh, L-tryptophan. They got milkshakes without the tryptophan. Half of them got milkshakes with the tryptophan. So no one could tell who got what. The nurses didn't know. The psychiatrists didn't know. The patients didn't know. And then we collected data on, on changes in depression for uh, three, four weeks, and then broke the code to see how much improvement there was from the uh, massive boost in, in brain serotonin. And there was absolutely no change in either group. Uh, uh, there was not a shred of evidence that this massive increase that we were causing in brain serotonin that didn't help anybody whatsoever. And we published that in the top psychiatry journal uh, and said that this isn't consistent with this, this theory. Uh, there, there's no no evidence for it, and then I got frustrated and said, "Well, maybe maybe we didn't give them enough tri tryptophan." So I bought with my research grant two pounds of L-tryptophan from the Ajinomoto Company of New York Incorporated, and went to the hospital. They taught me how to create sterile intra intravenous infusions with unbelievable amounts of L-tryptophan, the most that's biochemically possible to get into a human being. And I started injecting this into the veins of the veterans. So such massive doses, their brain serotonin was probably going up by a thousand times. And all it did was put them to sleep. It didn't help anybody's mood. And I said, this theory sucks. And, and I told my supervisor, I don't know if I want to spend my, my life doing research on this because I got a grant from the federal government to create a brain serotonin laboratory. And, and, and I, I told my supervisor, who was one of the original biological psychiatrists, I, I, I said, I, why are we studying serotonin? I, there's no evidence that it has anything to do with anything. And, and he says, well, we've got a good deal going here. I could show you how to test these serotonin drugs for drug companies. You can make millions. You already have, you're just out of your residency. You already have a worldwide reputation and, and research. Don't, don't shake the boat. And I thought, I don't care about shaking boats or not shaking boats. I, I want to help people. I want to cure people. And then the other thing was we were give, I was giving all kinds of antidepressants to people and doing conventional talk therapy. And I wasn't seeing this magical 85% cure rate the drug companies were, were claiming. I hardly ever had anyone who, who recovered. Some improved a little. Many didn't change at all. Some, some, some got worse. And, and, and I said, the, the king, beautiful clothes don't exist. The, this whole approach, it just isn't working. And that's when I heard about Aaron Beck's development of this new therapy, theory of drug-free treatment for depression that sounded goofy, cognitive therapy, that your, your depression results from your thoughts, your cognitions. And then when people are depressed, they think negatively, I am no good, I'm a loser. Or if they're anxious, something terrible is going to happen. When I get up and get my talk, my mind will, will go blank. I'll make a fool of myself. People will judge me. And I knew my patients had these thoughts, but it seemed ridiculous that you could train people to change the way they think and change the way they feel. But I decided to try it out because I was just desperate to find something to help help my patients. And I was shocked that I went to his weekly seminar and started trying the techniques on, on my patients, almost all of whom were, weren't really recovering. And all of a sudden they started recovering. And I said, this is really interesting. I, I was wrong to be so cynical about it, but it just sounded so silly and simplistic that you could change, treat depression by changing negative thoughts. But I couldn't deny that my patients were recovering and they wanted more. And I finally decided just to, to give my grant back, to, to send it back to the federal government. Say, I don't want this money. I can't stand the idea of spending my life studying brain serotonin because it's never going to amount to anything. It's, it's a fraudulent false theory. It's a waste of time. And I want to cure people. And so I left the university. I had a full-time academic appointment, a tenure track, and went into private practice and stayed on the, on the faculty at Penn as a voluntary faculty member, just as now I'm on the voluntary faculty at Stanford. But I, I decided I wanted to, you know, help develop this and other new approaches in, in psychotherapy. And I'm, I'm just so glad I did it. But it was the hardest decision on, of my life because they put tremendous pressure on me to, to stay on the faculty 
faculty and they said, oh, you're throwing your life away. You're, you're going to do all this great research. You can't do research when you're in private practice. And that didn't turn out to be true. I collected data on all my patients when I was in private practice, but I focused on how does psychotherapy work rather than brain chemistry. And that led to, uh, I published articles in the top psychology journals and, and developed radical new insights about causes and cures for depression and anxiety. And that's eventually uh, morphed into the new uh, team cognitive therapy that I've developed at Stanford, which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Uh, I never would have dreamed uh, at the beginning of my career that psycho uh, a form of psychotherapy could be develop that's this powerful. Now, when I work with people, and then I'll shut up because I'm talking too much, but when I work with people, I, I generally see a complete elimination of symptoms the first time I meet with them. It has to be a two-hour session, but I now see psychotherapy as a procedure, more like open-heart surgery, that you do all at one time in, in a, you know, a single day or half a day or just, just a couple of hours. And it's the most exciting t time of my, my career because when my patients go from despair to joy. You know, the Buddha said we're, we're all one. Probably every guru has said that. You, you don't know what it means, but it's really true because when my patients go into a state of euphoria, it, it thrusts me into a state of euphoria. And so, and I, all, I treat everybody for free, for free now. The idea of, of charging for healthcare or mental healthcare is just disturbing to, to me. But, but I just, it's the, the most rewarding thing I do, I do in, the, in, in the world is, is, is treating pe people and, and seeing them recover so fast. It just, it's, it's like participating in a, in a miracle over and over again. That's beautiful, David. I love that last phrase that you just shared, participating in a miracle over and over again. I just want to recognize that chapter that you shared with us when you made that sort of shift in your career. At a point when you were at the top of your game, at a point where you had this coveted research grant that could have just like funded your career for the next several years, as I understand. I also understand that you were already winning some major accolade, you know, major awards and recognition for yeah. the work that you were doing. Again, you put it in a very playful and humble way, but it was being recognized as being very pioneering. But somehow, in a sense, your... I don't know what you want to call it, your conscience, your higher wisdom, your logical mind, your more someone who's striving to see truth for what it is, not for the varnished version that may be thrown at us from our community or the orthodoxies of thinking of our people. That part of you seemed to get stirred by something, something beyond, something beyond what you were doing in that moment. And you had that clarity and you had that courage to actually leave behind that very successful world take a plunge into the unknown, even with all the cautions that people in your immediate environment were throwing at you, like, are you, you know, what are you doing and why are you doing that, et cetera? You, you took that plunge, you, you followed your own inner calling and my heavens, you know, not just have you blazed a really remarkable trail, you know, since, but the incredible countless number of people who benefited from it is a testimony to how that is the right path. That's the right path not just looking backward for you, David, but it's the right path for any or all of us, right? To really learn to anchor ourselves in that inner voice and seek to strive for that clarity and, and step back a little bit with healthy skepticism from the things we're hearing from time to time, integrate all the facts and then go down and follow our heart. I mean, well, what a beautiful story right there, David. Let's get into the main stream of work that you've been doing over the years. One of the things you just shared is that you are very recently been invested in and inspired about a single session of transformation that you help people go through, sometimes over two hours, sometimes half a day, sometimes a day. Is it actually really possible? You know, if I think about people and the struggle that many are going through today with how they feel beaten up, they feel beaten up at times by institution and leaders that they can no longer trust. They feel beaten up by a lack of clarity as to where health and safety is going in a coronavirus age. They feel shaken by all these uh, realizations that we are so far more in need to advance right now on issues like racism. There is you know, a lot of job loss and economic uncertainty, etc. So in a global kind of crisis moment like this, when so many are facing a lot of struggle with regard to moods, anxiety, depression, is this something that will only get fixed when these outer conditions are fixed? Is it something that will only get fixed 
just over long periods of time when people take medication because they just happen to be someone who's been diagnosed as a clinically depressed person or I mean, there's something powerful in what you're saying, but can you like double click on that and tell us how does that work? This idea of the ability to transcend and transform and go from depression and anxiety to, to joy and, and peace in through certain, certain interventions and actions that you're helping people take. One of the really awesome, thanks for the great question. One, and, and the times are indeed very, very threatening right, right now from many different perspectives uh, for, for folks. But one of the great ideas that's at the core of cognitive therapy and, and the new team therapy that I've developed since I've been at Stanford uh, goes back, you know, 2000 years to the time of Epictetus, the Greek Stoic philosopher, and really beyond before that to the Buddha who said the same thing, but that, that human beings are disturbed not by things, but by the views they take of them. And in other words, it's not the events of our lives that make us unhappy, but the thoughts that we have. And this is such a basic idea. It's almost a little like Wittgenstein. What he was saying was so basic, people couldn't understand it. And, and this is really saying that all of your emotions, even at this minute while you're watching this show, are not created by what Hitendra is saying, what, what David is saying, but, but by, by your thoughts about it. And this is a tremendously liberating in theory and in a practical reality because we often can't change the circumstances of our lives, but we can change the, the way we, we think about it. That, that, that's the first the first huge idea. And by the way, uh, on, on my weekly Feeling Good podcast, I had a, a segment, a second podcast each week for seven weeks or so called the Corona Casts. And I actually treated people live on the Corona Casts who, who, who were upset by things related to, to Corona. Like one was a beautiful psychologist whose husband is an emergency room, uh, an ICU doctor in New York. And he, he's working all day long with, with COVID patients. And he's afraid he, he's had to intubate two of his colleagues uh, who we worked with. And he's horrified that he's going to get the uh, COVID and die. So he's moved out from his wife and three children and, and she uh, protect them. And she's worried that he's going to die. And she asked for a session to help with her moods. And, and she said at the start of the session that she cries herself to sleep every night. And is my husband going to die? And, and this is unfair. That, that he should be have to be out in the battlefield fighting. I mean, I could, could I, I can earn enough money for our family to, to survive. Why can't he come, come home and be with me? And so I had her write down her thoughts, just as I do in every session. What, what are you telling yourself? And, and, and what you find is even in a, when there's an actual crisis, each person's upset is not caused by the crisis, but by their own thoughts. And those thoughts are, are typically distorted. And, and when you challenge those thoughts and look at things in a more positive and realistic way, your feelings can change. And, and actually the thought that was uh, upsetting her was I should be strong. I shouldn't be upset and I shouldn't share my feelings with, with my husband because that will be too much of a burden for him. And I shouldn't feel the way I do. And, and so she was kind of beating up on herself with all of these unrealistic should statements and, and high expectations for herself. And and then when she identified all the distortions in that thought, like 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 I shouldn't be upset, I shouldn't share my feelings with my husband, she, she saw that it's like all or nothing thinking, it's should statements, it's self-blame, it's emotional reasoning, it's mind reading. And then when we began to examine the evidence for that, she, she realized, well, maybe it's okay to share some of my thoughts and, and maybe sharing my thoughts with him will bring us closer together, my feelings. And, and when we've done that in the past, it's led to a more loving loving relationship. And and so it didn't, maybe took an, an hour and a half to complete the whole treatment, which you can actually hear on live happening if you want to look up that, uh, that recent uh, podcast of mine. And, uh, and she just smashed the thought. And once she smashed the first thought, saw, saw how unrealistic it was. And she said to herself, it's okay to share my feelings with, with, with my husband. And it's okay to be upset. And I don't have to be in control all the time. She felt such 
joy that she was able to blow all of her other thoughts away. And she felt she felt great. And then the oddest thing happened is a couple of days after the we completed the podcast, her worst fear came to pass. And her husband developed a fever and was diagnosed with, with, with COVID. And then I like to ask people, and what do you think happened when her worst fear came to pass? Well, what happened? Most people, oh, she's going to be all upset. But remember, reality never causes our feelings. It's only our thoughts. And, and what happened is she said, well, gosh, he's got a mild case. He's not going to die. And she went into a state of euphoria. And she just emailed me recently that she and her husband are now reunited. They, they rented a little house out, out in the country to just to have some beautiful time to be together. And she's just on, on, on top of the world. But that's her story. And every person listening uh, right now has their own negative th thoughts. And, and one of the beautiful things about this approach is I don't have general advice to give to people. I always say to people, when you're upset, write down your thoughts on a, on a piece of paper, see what you're telling yourself. And you'll often see that those thoughts are distorted with the 10 distortions from my book, F Feeling Good. And when you challenge those thoughts, uh, you can change the way you feel and it can happen rapidly. And this is so different from the way people are trained. The way I was trained as a psychiatrist and even the Stanford psychiatrists today are trying to think that depression builds up over years and it takes years of treatment to make it go away. But but that's not my experience with it. You, usually people recover from depression in about 10, well, I'll say maybe to be generous, maybe 60 seconds or 90 seconds. It takes a little while to build up to that moment, but the very moment they stop believing these distorted thoughts, in that instant, your, your feelings will, will change. And so this is fantastic on the one hand, because it's true, it's a powerful tool. But at the same time, when I say these things, it creates a certain antagonism among some mental health professionals and the general public who, who aren't used to thinking this, this way and are kind of committed to therapy as some long-term thing that happens happens over a course of, of years and, and that change is, is slow and, and gradual. And I found that uh, change can be uh, rapid and to me, and to me, that's a blessing. If if my daughter were depressed and she went to a therapist who 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 could cause her to recover in in one single two-hour therapy session, I I would kiss that person's feet and say, thank you. And and that's how we treat pneumonia with intravenous penicillin. The idea isn't to have pneumonia for years. That there's something wonderful or honorable about that. The idea is to have a, a curative intervention. And that's how I think. Uh, psychiatry and psychology uh, could be, but it, it, it's, the field is beginning to evolve and change, but it's, it's been slowly and, and, and against quite, quite a bit, bit of resistance. There's so many things in the, this new therapy model that are radically different from the way most mental health professionals uh, treat people. Well, what a beautiful story that you've shared of this uh, lady and her transformation and what transpires after that and how she continues to then benefit from this awareness of, uh, you know, just shifting her thoughts into a certain place and then she accepts reality for what it is and can continue to flourish. Well, what a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that, uh, David, as a way to illustrate for us the power of the thesis you are sharing, which if I get the very, very central kind of part of it, it is that it's not these outer conditions. It is the thoughts that they trigger that lead us into unhealthy mental states. And therefore, we can be the engineers of moving our feelings into a better place by controlling those thoughts, as you said, smashing some of them and yeah. moving, moving us beyond. Now, I, there's a phrase that you use, which um, I have found very powerful and liberating about how these are not traits, but these are states. The idea that um, the discipline of you know, mental health sometimes has um, typified individuals to be possessed of a certain trait, but actually those things... Um, can be viewed as states, and you can drift in and out of them. Could you could you just talk about that for a second? Well, yeah, that's that, that's true uh, on so many levels. What what you just said, but you know, the the Buddha said we drift in and out of enlightenment. When I first heard that, I didn't know what it means. You hear these goofy Buddha statements that seem nonsensical, and then suddenly it comes to you what they actually mean. And what what it means is is that uh, probably no one is allowed to be happy all the time. I'll often say we're entitled to five happy days per week and two miserable days. And if you don't have your five happy days, you need a little mental tune-up. 
And if you don't have your two miserable days, you're getting a little too happy. And maybe we need to put you on lithium, which is not meant to be disrespectful, but a, but, but a joke. But there's, there's wisdom in it because I'm a pretty happy person. I'm, I'm so thrilled with life and so grateful for my life and my colleagues having a chance to hang out with you right now at Denver. It's like, kind of like a miracle, really, to me. It's amazing. And you're so talented and so skillful and you've done such a beautiful job with your colleagues in creating this this show show today but things happen to me and and all of us that really demoralize us and we can go in an instant from joy to feelings of shame or guilt or anger or rage or depression or panic panic or you know hopelessness discouragement and so what i i do is is give a person tools that work for them I've, I've developed over a hundred tools for crushing depression, crushing anxiety. But, but once you find the tool that works for you, it'll work for, for the rest of your life. It's so that once I've worked with someone and, and they've recovered and they're enlightened and euphoric, then I just do relapse prevention training, which takes maybe 25 minutes and let them know that these negative thoughts, these insecurities, these inadequacies will return over and over again throughout your life. That's a mandatory, it's a part of the human condition, but I want you to know what tools to use when that happens, because it's okay to be upset for an hour, or it's okay to be upset for, for a day or even a few days, but if you've got the tools to pop out of that and then drift back into enlightenment, that's, that's, the, whole, that's, that's the whole secret. But another dimension on what you said of states versus traits, you, you see American Psychiatric Association views negative moods as mental disorders. And they have this DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And they try to train, change all negative emotions into diff different uh, mental disorders. Now, if I could see a show of hands from the people listening, which I can't, but I'd say how many of you sometimes get anxious in social situations or have public speaking anxiety, fear judgment of others, or feel uh, insecure uh, in, in, in groups of people. And nearly, nearly all the hands go up. And that's just a way that human beings feel. I used to have what the Psychiatrists would say five different forms of social anxiety myself. I had a crushing public speaking anxiety, so social anxiety. I had a phobia of cameras. I couldn't see, I can smile now for my camera. I couldn't do that for 50 years. But these are just feelings that people have and they're easily treatable and they're easily changeable. But when you call, see, they would say, oh, you aren't shy. You have social anxiety disorder like you have a brain disorder and they do that with everything. You're not sad and down. You have major depressive disorder. Oh, you worry a lot. Well, you have generalized anxiety disorder. They're trying to disorder everything. And it's a dichotomous yes or no thing. But these are just feelings that human beings have. But when you view it as a disorder or a, or a, uh, a state rather than just a trait or a feeling that you have, then, then you think, oh, I'm defective. You're ashamed. Then they say it's because of a chemical imbalance in your brain or a bad childhood or some personality de defect. And the, the, one of the things that makes the new team therapy so powerful is we've come to see that these symptoms, as well as people's resistance to change, do not result from a chemical imbalance in your brain or that you're broken or that you have a, a brain disorder or some kind of mental defect. Your symptoms, your negative feelings result from what's most beautiful and awesome about you. They're, they're not expressions of the brokenness, they're, they're expressions of your, your deepest core values as, as a human being. And the moment you see that, that your negative feelings are not bad, but good, really beautiful things. And I really try to talk my patients into preserving them, not getting rid of them. And, and I do that in a very gentle and positive and respectful way. And the moment the patient sees this, paradoxically, the resistance to change disappears. And, and generally recovery is just 10 or 15 minutes away. It takes a little while to do that procedure of melting away the resistance. It might take 45 minutes of, of the session, but it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing. And it's a radically different way of viewing negative feelings from this illness model. Now there are three or four true 
mental disorders. Schizophrenia is one, bipolar one, the full-blown manic depressive illness. These are due to some abnormalities of brain tissue. They're, they're real mental disorders. But 90 to 95% of what causes happiness for the people watching the show right now uh, is not mental disorders, but just negative feelings that, that are a part of life. Uh, but there are things you can do to, to pinpoint those negative thoughts, the distorted thoughts that, that are causing those feelings and to, and to transform them. And that's not to say we should never be unhappy. Some negative feelings are healthy. You, you know, if a loved one dies or a pet that you love dies, it's natural to cry, to, to have grief, to be sad, because your sadness is an expression of your love for, for life. But when you get depression or excessive anxiety, you're telling your things, self things that aren't true, like, I'm a loser, I'm no good, I'll be hopeless, things will never change. And, and, and that's, that's what can be changed now, in, in many cases, very, very rapidly. David, um, in so many ways, you've just uh, summarized such a powerful body of work that, of course, we can only do so much justice to in the very precious hour that we have together. That, uh, yes, I know that uh, many of us are keen to get some very practical knowledge, practical tools, some insights in not just how to do this work for ourselves, but also to maintain its momentum and not you know, relapse back. And... David, you've been sharing a lot of things here that are giving glimpses into a much richer kind of machinery that is, you know, so beautifully documented and shared and taught in your books. And so we're going we're gonna to spark some of these ideas here today in your presence. So David's talked about the realization that thoughts are behind a lot of our feelings. It's not the events on the outside that, David, you tend to ask people not just to help them just broadly, but to start writing down their thoughts and diagnosing, in a sense, what's wrong with them, which leads to your point about these 10 mental distortions that you've compiled, which is there in your books, these 10 distortions, and then these several techniques that you offer in order to really be able to then ultimately, what you're calling, smash those thoughts to get rid of those distortions, but also to hold the space for those thoughts that might be, in some ways, a valid representation you know, of the, the world that we are facing when somebody does get sick or in some cases somebody does pass away and to validate some of those feelings as being very noble and coming from a place of deep values. So there's a lot that you've shared already, which uh, I think represents that full arc of going from pain to healing, which can only be done full justice to by any of us if we really put in that effort and that time to go through. And yet it's not... It's not very effortful effort because when I read your books, David, one thing that really struck me about them, you know, very different from so many others that one, you know, gets a chance to read is that it almost feels like you are there with me, talking to me. It doesn't look like I'm reading words from the passive agency of a book. It looks like I'm having a dialogue with you. You know, you're just incredible at um, taking this craft of what you've done in the therapist suite and translating it into even, even just the form of a book. And can you talk for a minute about, you know, this incredible um, way in which the psychotherapy profession has also recognized the power of the teaching that is there in feeling good in, in your book? I, I recognize you're coming out with a new book now, which might further advance the craft. But um, I was very inspired by this notion of bibliotherapy, <laughs> you know, getting therapy by reading a book. And there's some incredible studies that have been done on that with feeling good. Could you could you just talk about that for a second? Well, yes, I, I, I first read about these studies in the New York Times. Uh, I didn't know that they were going on, but a uh, psychologist at the University of Alabama named Forrest Kogan began doing research on my book, Feeling Good, uh, because he was trying to say, what what is the, the cheapest and most effective way to treat people with, with depression? And he said, what would happen if... We took people who were coming to the medical center for treatment for moderate to severe depression and uh, told them they had to be on a waiting list for four weeks before they could see their doctor. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, read this book, uh, Feeling Good. And uh, half the patients, they just put on the waiting list, half of them for four weeks, and they, the other half was a random outcome study. Half of them, they gave the book Feeling Good. And what they uh, reported, and they studied their moods every week for the, for the four weeks, is they found that the, the people on the waiting list hadn't 
changed, but two-thirds of the patients who they gave the book feeling good to improved so much or recovered to the extent that they no longer wanted or needed therapy. That that was fantastic because I didn't think of the book as a self-help book. I was just book about something I was excited about. I imagined it, it might help people in therapy recover faster, but but that I didn't think it would itself have antidepressant effects. And then they, they they took the ones who hadn't improved, who were on the waiting list, and they said, oh, you have to wait four more weeks, but in the meanwhile, read this book. And then in the next four weeks, two-thirds of them also improved or recovered uh, to the extent that they no, no longer needed treatment. And then they've also done follow-up studies on those patients for up to three years, and they ha- they've remained feeling good. They've gotten improved even more and did not have any relapses needing treatment. They they often got upset just as I do and just as you do. But they said when they got upset, they just pulled the book off the shelf and, and read those those pages again. And then there have been multiple independent studies uh, with different uh, teenagers or older people, diff- different ethnicities. And it seems to have that, that effect uh, has been replicated over and over again. And my new book, Feeling Great, uh, it will address how about the one-third of people who didn't improve when they read Feeling Good, and how about that the 50% of patients in all these psychotherapy of uh, studies of depression or antidepressant studies, more than half the patients don't improve in those studies. What's the difference with the ones who don't improve? Why are they stuck? And I think my research led me to the discovery of why uh, some people get stuck in depression. And that's what led to the new team therapy that has even new and more amazing tools. All the original cognitive therapy stuff I had in Feeling Good, all that stuff is still pure gold. And But, but we now have uh, new innovative techniques to reduce this therapeutic resistance that keeps some of us stuck, who get stuck or sucked in by by, by depression. And that's really, uh, these new techniques are the secret of the ultra rapid recovery I'm now now seeing in, in the vast majority of people I, I treat. So what would be one, um, one example, David, of sort of a, a you know, let, let's say a practical insight or a tool or a technique uh, from this advancements that you've done in the last few years, that could benefit our, um, you know, our listeners about how are there certain people who are more able to step back and become aware of their thoughts and, and work on them and others who may not be as able to do that. And so you've talked about how you're now working to help, uh, you know, bring breakthroughs to that percentage who weren't showing a lot of impact in the past. So is there, is there some one tool or insight uh, that uh, could be of value for our listeners? Well, I, 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 there's certainly tendency that varies among people toward negative thinking and, and getting sucked in by, by negative thinking. And, and we don't know the cause of that. There could be genetic factors or environmental factors, but certainly that everything's on a bell-shaped curve. But what's really cool is the, the new te- techniques we, we can help. You know, almost anybody who's feeling depressed or anxious at my hospital in Philadelphia, I'm now at Stanford, but I, I was at a, an inner city hospital, Presbyterian Medical Center, and we developed a huge cognitive therapy program for the people in, in our area that we, we treated mainly, uh, you know, homeless people and people, uh, a quarter of our patients couldn't couldn't read or write. They were from all ethnicities. And we treated them just with with cognitive therapy groups based on my book, 10 Days to Self-Esteem. And the groups are just led by people in the neighborhood who were taught and trained by clinical psychologists. And that program was very inexpensive. Uh, And and so our department of psychiatry grew from uh, two employees when I started the department to to over 200 uh, full-time employees within a year. And we ran thousands of patients through that that program, and most of them were symptom-free within three days. And it was just a, an entirely new model, a new way of treating people. But but we we had people from all walks of life and all all orientations. But the the compassion of, of the people in the program to for helping the, these individuals, and we didn't treat them like one group a week. We treated people all day long, like every day. You come into the program, and you're going to be in cognitive therapy groups from early morning to late at night every day until you're recovered and and, and ready to to get, you know, di- discharged. 
but I, I think it can be helpful for virtually anyone. But, but another thing I learned in my research and something you alluded to is that the act of practice is absolutely mandatory. Uh, you can't just read my book, Feeling Good, and then expect to recover. You have to do the written exercises, write down your thoughts, identify the distortions like all or nothing thinking, overgeneralization, emotional reasoning, should statement, self-blame, and things like that. And then practice, how am I going to challenge that thought? And there's something about that, that written exercise that seems important. And at my clinic uh, in Philadelphia, I also have, uh, you know, an an outpatient clinic on a private practice model. And I did research on hundreds of patients who came to us. And what I discovered was that virtually every patient who did a little bit of uh, psychotherapy homework consistently throughout the therapy uh, improved or recovered completely in the first 12 weeks of treatment. And virtually every patient who refused to do the homework assignments uh, failed to improve. Many of them deteriorated and just uh, dropped out of therapy. And I published that in the top psychology journals. And, and that variable, which I call willingness, is still, I think, the only variable in the world literature that's been shown to have a ma massive causal effect on changes in, in depression. And that's what actually led to the team therapy, because then I saw, well, since some people are unwilling to do this, what techniques could we do to melt away their resistance? And that, that's, that's been the feature of the new, the new team therapy that'll be in the new book, Fe Feeling Great, all those new techniques as well as the original cognitive therapy techniques. But I'm so looking forward to that book, David. Um, it sounds like it's really advancing the craft in a very important way and all based on real grounded work that you've been doing uh, over the years. As you were speaking about this need for that effortful repeated practice in a disciplined way it just reminded me of an experience very recently in my own career where I was really struggling with um, one outcome that was not coming my way and uh, I was feeling that I was going down a certain gentle spiral towards depression or just feeling really low about the fact that this was not happening and then I have these two modes in which I operate one where I get very obsessed and attached to that goal and the other where I just get myself anchored in my core belief that there is a power in this universe that is all loving and caring and attentive and ever present and, you know, omnipotent. And that the only duty I have in life is to be able to step away from my ego to allow that power to kind of flow through and do its bidding because it knows better than I do as to essentially what it is that uh, we need to kind of make happen in humanity. And I had to really slow my work down, slow my life down, go into a reflective mode, do almost the kind of work that you're talking about, of recognizing my goal-obsessed thought in that moment, challenging the thought, bringing it back to my core belief, putting a lot of energy into that belief in that moment. And to your point, you know, you just experience this complete sense of release and liberation from that, from that negative thought. And you go into this place of grace and serenity and, and joy. And, um, you know, and it's, it's, a daily, it's a daily journey to, to make, to have to keep sort of striving for that illumination, that enlightenment, that balance, as you said, to drift back into that more enlightened state. You've done a beautiful job, not only in translating a lot of these concepts into the business world and for people people in general to make them understandable, but you've also done your own personal work, your meditation, your own spiritual effort. And, and this has had a powerful transforming effect on you, which is, is beautiful to see. And then what I'm, the kinds of things I'm doing from a secular perspective, from a research perspective, from practical tools, are, are really accomplishing the, the same kinds of goals to get people to a state of uh, self-acceptance. I've often said self-acceptance is the greatest change a human being can make. And, and to get to a, a stage of what you might call spiritual enlightenment, because to me, I'm no longer treating people's defects to try to make them less depressed or less broken. That, that was the model when I was a psychiatric resident. But my goal now is to bring people not only to a complete abolishment of their feelings of depression and anxiety, but also to thrust them into a state, stage of, of joy, of, of enlightenment, of, of inner peace, something that's a little difficult to, to explain in words. If you see it happening, like in a live therapy session, you, you, you can see the moment when the person gets it. And if you've experienced it yourself, then you grasp it. But, but at first, it's a little hard, hard, hard to grasp. And a lot of people just believe it's not even 
possible. They just think it's it's a lot of BS, but it's it's something very real and something very beautiful. Yeah. No. Thank you for sharing that, David. Um, in in that uh, last kind of like piece that you you know you just talked about, I mean, um, it's beautiful to see how you have continued to reinvent yourself and to advance human consciousness in very practical ways, in very toolkit based ways. You were talking about the need for really sort of helping people feel really, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like putting words in your mouth now. I, I forget the words you were using, but something about making them feel really a sense of great fulfillment and worth for who they are. And I remember your book, 10 Days to Self-Esteem, which to me should also be considered a classic. The book is incredible in terms of a very structured way in helping people advance that cause of sort of a healthy, you know, sustainable form of like self-esteem. So am I hearing from you that um, in more recent times, you have further pushed the envelope and further advanced that into a much more deeper place of people feeling this joyful sense of connection with themselves? And is that something that feeling great, your new book is going to sort of help give give more? Yeah, that's why I wrote Feeling Great, uh, although I've written spinoffs from Feeling Good. This is the first true sequel because it, it will have massive new technology for, for change while preserving all the great stuff that was in Feeling Good. All of that stuff is still great, but there's a whole second technology that, that's as powerful but radically different from that. And, and, and when you put those two together, it's like one plus one equals three type of thing. And so the and, and essentially the, the new book is not only working on cognitions, but also on motivation and, and, and resistance and also transforming the field from a field that's based on viewing people as, as broken to, uh, to, to, to quite, quite the opposite, that, that, that our suffering is revealing things about us, not that are broken and shameful, but that, that are beautiful and awesome. And the moment the person sees the beauty of, of the depression, the, the, this, the beating up on yourself, the self-criticisms, I'm, I'm not, not good enough. And instead of seeing those things as shameful defects that you shouldn't do, to see those as, as, as expressing truly remarkable, beautiful, mind-blowing things about you, suddenly your shame disappears and you become proud of your symptoms rather than ashamed of them. And the moment you do, you, you, you don't need the symptoms anymore and really easy then to cause people to recover. It's so easy now for me to treat people. It, it, it's, it almost feels shameful, like it's supposed to be way, way harder. But I think we have something that, that's truly remarkable and, and truly, truly a breakthrough. It, it'll take a while to catch on, just like cognitive therapy. When I wrote it, there were only 12 or 15 cognitive therapists in the world, and most, and most people considered us quacks. Now it's kind of the same thing. After cognitive therapy came out, now, or feeling good, that's now become the most popular form of psychotherapy in the world and the most researched form of psychotherapy in human history. And now I'm, I have to do the same thing with the new book, Feeling Great, and the, and the new ideas, which I believe uh, represent a potential major advance beyond cog- cognitive therapy, which, which was huge. It, it, deserves to be honored. The techniques are still effective, but there's something uh, even more powerful now. David, to wrap this up, you are somebody who strikes me as so deeply invested in your cause, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, decade by decade. And I'm always struck whenever I spend time with you, how invested you are, how focused you are, how passionate you are, how productive you are, how prolific you know you are in, in all that you're thinking and all that you're doing and all that you're documenting and all that you're teaching and all that you're researching and all that you're doing to heal, you know, heal people. Where do you get that energy and how do you stay rejuvenated given that it must, it must, take, it must take a lot from you to be able yeah. to wake up in the morning, do all this incredible work and get back to bed? I mean, where does, where does your energy come from? Well, just to go full circle, it comes back to what we started out on the, on the show, the decision I made not to stay in a field that I knew was not valid and that you know, wasn't really going to bear fruit and, and to do what I loved and what I, what I believed in. And that decision has really pay, paid off for me because I just, I, I absolutely love, love what I'm doing. I was telling you, and we'll do this on another show maybe, but I have this fantastic new database on how psychotherapy works. I've got data on over 9,000 psychotherapy sessions. 
and I'm building a mathematical model that's creating amazing new insights that are radically different from the way the field thinks psychotherapy works. And I get so excited that, well, this morning I slept in. I slept until six. And usually uh, I'm so excited, I'll wake up at four and come down and start analyzing that data. And it's like being in a candy store, just discoveries come out several every day. I'm just lucky to be doing what I what I love love doing. And then when I work with people for free, my training group at Stanford is free for therapists in the Bay Area that they can come and get unlimited ther- training and unlimited therapy for the rest of their life for free every, every week, uh, two hours, uh, on Tuesday nights and then before the COVID that, that we also be to have a six hour hike on Sundays and you can come and, and then people are grateful and they want to give back. And so that's created a whole community like people, you know, like Jill Levitt, who's incredibly brilliant and Matthew May, who's a fantastic therapist. And, and so it's led to a community of, of, of creativity. And now I'm working with Jeremy Carmel on a, a feeling great app and we're putting in tremendous time time on that we'll be recording for today the idea of de- developing a kind of an electronic david that i think can be as good or better than the, the real david because when i got the data on my book feeling good and saw that 65 percent people who read it were cured in four weeks i said gosh that's better than i'm doing my book is better than i am because i can be kind of irritable but the the persona I created in that book is always loving and consistent and, and wonderful. But I, I'm hopeful that the app we're working on can have some of those those same effects too, so that people all over the world, people listening to the show now, can can participate in. And if anyone wants to be, be a beta tester for, uh, just go to my website, feelinggood.com forward slash app, and you can sign up there and you can help us develop this app by telling us what turns you off, what turns you on, what do you like, what do you not like. Well, that's one. Wonderful. I'm super excited to hear about the app. We are living in a very appified world, and why not use this channel as as well as a way to get... Um, you were the, the guy who told me to do it. Re- remember, you brought me into yeah. the app store like five yeah. years ago or eight years ago. Yeah. I don't. I still don't even have a cell phone, but it, it finally dawned on me that what you were saying yeah. was, was right. I have to thank you for that. You still don't have a cell phone? No, but my the guy I'm working on the app with, or the guys, they say, I've got to get one. So I think I'll get a, an iPhone 11 or something like that for Melanie. And they say, then you can use the app you're creating and see how it looks and everything like that. So I'll probably break down and, and get one. But uh, it just never appealed to me to have a cell phone. Well, that's an incredible revelation, David. You don't have a cell phone. And that is what most of us today are mad at you. But on the other hand, you have this wonderful spouse. Uh, that, that article in the Stanford Magazine talks about, in a very beautiful way, the time of your meeting you know, and dating and ultimately getting married. And uh, Melanie is a clinical psychologist herself and I know has been a tremendous force in your life. Could you, yeah. could you close this out by just um, reflecting with us on that relationship? Like, What has it meant to you? to have her with you all through this journey? Well, I just love her tremendously and I'm so grateful to have Melanie as my wife. She's really the brains in our family. She, she uh, when I met her, she was just kind of a high school dropout and uh, kind of a hippie and we were hippies. This is for another show in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, everyone was tripping out and Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters were around and Palo Alto was just a wild, wild place. But I offered her a ride on my motorcycle and she accepted. Uh, and we've been uh, on a great journey ever since. And then she went ahead and went to college after the kids were born. And she got her PhD in clinical psychology at Penn. And she's just incredibly brilliant. And I'll, I'll struggle for something uh, for six months that I don't understand, trying to figure it out. Then I'll mention it to her. And in 15 seconds, she'll blurt out the answer. So she she always knows how I'm thinking. She knows how I'm feeling. She's kind of my guide and she supports me and makes it possible to do what I'm doing. And it's kind of hard for her now uh, with the COVID thing because it's not hard for me because I'm like with you now having fun and, and I do Zoom and stuff with my colleagues all day long, but uh, she can't play uh, tennis now with, with, with her friends and she's feeling a little uh, sad and, and, and down. Uh, so we're, you know, but we met uh, 
last Saturday with our son Eric, who has a new girlfriend, who Sammy, and she's just just awesome, and he's on top of the world. And we went on a kind of a distant hike, and then ate at, at in our dining room, but at like about eight feet from from each other. So we we had a little family family contact there, which means so much to her. Really lucky to have Melanie. Well, do uh, convey my warm regards to her, and you know, I think all of us feel a great sense of thankfulness for what she has meant to you and what you, I'm sure, must mean to her. David, you mentioned some time ago that you know, if your daughter was you know suffering from this thing, and there was this person who could help her in this way, you would kiss his feet. I think that that is an appropriate way for me to close out this moment with you. In that, beyond what you meant for the world, you, know, you have been a tremendous force in my own career. And while it is true that, as you recognize, I'm very grateful for you know teaching a path, a spiritual direction that I've been deeply invested in. You know, you should also know that the work that you are doing has been a critical complement to that. Not just for myself, but sometimes I brought these tools and these ideas into that community as well. And it's so synergistic. It's so harmonized with really the, the teaching that is there in any great spiritual tradition or any great spiritual path. But what you've done it done is to give it a certain form, give it a certain practical uh, toolkit and infuse it with these stories of modern day kind of like healing miracles, which I think are incredibly in many ways spiritual in nature. So it is a moment where I should kiss your feet because you have been a tremendous teacher and guide and illuminator for me, uh, much as for, for so much of the world. So thank you so much, David. I think on behalf of the community here, I'm sure all of us are wishing you all the best and all that you're doing in the months, years ahead. And I'm looking forward very much to feeling great as well. And I look forward to having you back on the show if you'd be open to gracing us again. Sure, I'd love that. It's just always fun to shoot the breeze with you. And I'm just so proud of what you've accomplished personally and professionally. And I'm yeah. just honored to, to be on your show and to interact with, with your audience today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>